Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis 1, look at a part of Genesis 1 and and some of Genesis 2 this morning. Uh, Most of the text is printed in the bulletin. Um, So this summer, we're looking at um, some of the ways in which the doctrine of the Trinity has significance for everything in uh, the Christian life. Uh, For the most part, we've been using pretty broad strokes, um, addressing very large and general uh, connections between the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Christian life. Um, I think this morning will be the most specific that we'll get in our explorations as we uh, discuss the particular uh, relationship that exists between human beings as uh, marriage. Uh, it's, It's such a specific topic, in fact, that it cannot immediately apply to everyone. It doesn't apply to everyone in this room. Um, Every other sermon could be directly applied to to anyone. Everyone should have a relationship with the triune God. Everyone should abide in him. Uh, Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be part of the church. Anyone can grow in holiness, do evangelism, etc. But not everyone is married, and not everyone will be married um, at some point in their lives. And even though that's true... um, we still need to address marriage with a triune perspective. And even, even though you may, may not be married, um, if you never will be, uh, what we're discussing this morning, I think, will still be helpful to you as you consider what it means to be a man or to be a woman in relationships um, with each other, which is um, it's actually how and why you were created, is to be in relationships with each other. So I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, first, let's pray, and then I'll read uh, some from... Genesis. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word that it um, is deep enough that we can return to it over and over again, especially this very familiar passage um, that we've probably read uh, more than we've read any other part of the Bible. Um, even this can, uh, can continue to hold revelation for us. And so uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, new things from your word and to be changed by your word this morning, especially by the gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, I'll read um, verses 26 through the end of the chapter, and then chapter 2, 18 uh, and following. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 18, 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, really briefly, there's a lot going on in Genesis 1 and 2. But uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are two accounts of creation. They're taking... uh, they're. They're talking about the same thing from different perspectives that they're taking, right? Uh, Genesis 1 is from a more cosmic uh, perspective with exalted language that at least borders on poetic language. Um, and Genesis 2 is, is taking the same uh, creation experience that, uh, that God, God created everything. He's taking it from a more earthly perspective, especially focusing in on uh, the creation of humanity. And both accounts actually... Um, see the creation of humanity as sort of the pinnacle of creation or the, the climax of what God was doing when he made everything. Uh, all the rest of creation is kind of a backdrop for humanity, and all the rest of creation is, um, is given to humanity for enjoyment, for life, uh, for work and cultivation. Humanity is especially dignified um, in this account, in both these accounts, as having a unique relationship with God. Uh, having been made in God's image. Um, in every other creative act, God simply spoke, and things leapt into being at his word, and in the, in the creation of humanity, God deliberates. God enters into counsel. Um, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's unlike anything that he has recorded, having, having said, made anything else. First of all, day six wasn't the first time um, that God had mulled over the prospect of creating man. This is, this is recorded here to highlight for us the significance of this particular act of creation. Right? The creation of humanity was special. God was setting it apart from the rest of creation. Um, and the second thing to notice about this, this is the, uh, the first hint in the scriptures that we have that God is triune. Um, the, the clearest revelation of God's triune nature, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it comes... Obviously, in the New Testament, right, in the Gospels, uh, particularly the, the first place where it's clearly revealed that God um, is more than one person. Um, but there are hints scattered throughout Old Testament language, like this place where God uses the first person plural, not just singular, but plural, uh, in a way that really doesn't make any sense unless God is a trinity, unless he's one God in three persons, uh, he's not talking to angels. He's not talking to anybody else because nothing else shares his image that he would say, let us make man in our image. Nothing else shares his creative power that he would say, let us make 
man in our image. Um, nothing else shares the divine image or the divine likeness or the divine power of creation like this. Uh, and there's really no evidence anywhere in the Bible that God uses this kind of language, the first person uh, plural kind of language, in the sense of the royal we, right? You hear uh, declarations from a king or queen and they say, we declare this or that. Um, it's the way of self-referring when you're majesty um, to to the first person uh, in plural. Um, there's no evidence that uh, God uses that kind of language in the Old Testament. This, this language just basically stood as a mystery for a few thousand years. Like, what, what does that mean exactly? That's, there's something going on there. What does that mean that God says, let us make man in our image until Jesus came and revealed with increasing clarity the fact that the one true God exists in uh, three persons eternally, in eternal relationship uh, with each other. But there's also something else in this text that hints at God's triune nature, and that's the fact that when God says, let us make man in our image, he goes on not to create a single person, but two. He creates man male and female. Um, and that right there is absolutely mind-boggling. God did not just create one human person. He created two in order that they would be in relationship with one another. Um, yet he didn't create them identical to one another. They're not the same. They're different. They're not duplicates of some asexual, uh, neutral being, right? But they're two distinct sexes, male and female. And even though they are two distinct sexes, both are human. Each one is human in a way that is different from the other, uh, but intended to be human together in relationship, even in union that we see with this uh, first man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, in marital union. So when God created humanity in his image, he created one humanity in two distinct types of persons, which, as I said, um, is a, at least a strong hint early in the Old Testament that God is more than one person, that he is himself persons in relationship. Um, now, there are probably a million questions that we could ask about things like what, what might gender uh, sexuality reflect about God or um, how other particular aspects of our humanity might reflect God's image, our intellect or our creativity or um, the ability to have relationships. Um, uh, but we're not going to ask all of those questions. The one thing that's clear from this text is that uh, man, male, by himself, is not sufficient to constitute humanity in God's vision. Right? One of those sexes is not enough to constitute humanity. Man, male, needs woman, needs female, uh, needs the companionship of the other, the one who is different from him. By God's own declaration, he needs this. Uh, in in 2.18, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him is an ally counterpart. Um, somebody who walks side by side but who, in a sense, is over and against you. It's a counterpart, but an ally. 
right? A helper fit for Adam. So I think it's safe to say that because God is triune, because God is not just one person, but that God is persons in relationship, it's not enough that humanity just be one person, right? Uh, Or even just one type of person, right? There is no definition of humanity that is genderless, that is asexual, um, if it's true that humanity is in God's image. And Karl Barth says that this, this, what we have here in the first chapters of Genesis, is a radical rejection of the picture of man in isolation. Uh, that, um, that spreads to the way that we think about a lot of things, but God's image means at least, at least, that if we're made in his image as humans, we are one in relationship with other. Because in himself, God is one in relationship with other. He's father in relationship with the son and son in relationship with the father in the spirit. John Calvin says in a quote that's in the beginning of the bulletin that man was formed to be a social animal. Uh, Interesting language, animal. (laughs) But uh, man was formed to be a social creature. So humanity is not completely humanity unless it exists as one in relationship with other, and the prototype for that relationship, the paradigm uh, of any human relationship between one and other, is the relationship between male and female. Um, You've heard the title of the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. The two sexes are worlds apart. It's impossible for one to truly and entirely understand the other. It's, it's actually impossible, I think. Um, and any other distinction between two different human beings, any other distinction, like uh, a difference in education, a difference in economic status, a difference in ethnicity even, any other distinction is secondary. It, it pales in comparison to the difference between male and female. That's the paradigm of uh, difference between humans. The distinction between uh, female and male is fundamental. It's, it's a distinction in the total package, right? Physiological, clearly. Uh, psychological, emotional, which means social and relational, too. Right? We are very different types of human. And in fact, it's impossible <clears throat> even to define the distinctions. I challenge you to do that. What, what makes a man a man and a woman a woman? Go ahead and try to define that. But when we do attempt to define them, we define them in relation to one another. Right? What is a woman? Well, she's different from a man. And vice versa. Right? So as God created us in his image for relationships with him and with one another, uh, he made humanity in two sexes so that we would be one in relationship with other. Um, And that applies generally to all of our relationships. Uh, We should not, in general, seek to become the other sex, uh, but be content to be ourselves as God made us in relationship to the other sex. Uh, We we should not think of humanity as some third essence or substance that is non-gendered, neutral, that is somehow shared by both sexes, yet is transcendent of either one. It's not what humanity is. 
um, humanity comes in two flavors. And uh, our sexuality is not peripheral. It's actually definitive in, um, in our relationships. And we should not think that male is better than female or vice versa. We should not think that female is better than male because you absolutely need both. You need one in relationship with the other to have a complete humanity that reflects God's image. Uh, the language in Genesis 2.18 where God says, I will make a helper fit for him, oftentimes people kind of distort that to say that um, the woman is subordinate to the man, but it does not imply subordination as if the woman were lesser than the man because that same language God applies to himself in other parts of the scripture where, um, where he is Israel's helper. And clearly God is not lesser than Israel, right? Uh, it says in Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. It's the same word. He is our help and our shield, right? He's not subordinate to us, um, but he is our help. And so Eve was not subordinate to Adam, though she was his help. The fact that Eve was made from a rib taken from Adam's side is uh, symbolic of their equality. So this text doesn't support anyone's thinking, whether you're married or otherwise, that one sex is superior to the other sex. But this passage is more, um, it, it's about more than common relationships between men and women in general. Right? This passage um, is about the union of marriage, ultimately. Uh, marriage is the permanent, complete joining of one man and one woman. Um, it, it was part of the world before the world went wrong, right? before there was sin. Marriage is a part of the way things were meant to be. It's not a capitulation to the way things are now that they're broken. It's not an exhaust vent for lusts. Uh, it is not a remedy for depressing loneliness. It's not even just a way to keep the human race going through reproduction. Um, Adam was perfect. But being sinless wasn't enough for God. He said it was not good that this sinless human male existed alone. So God gave Eve. He made Eve and he brought her as a, as a father gives away a bride. He brought her to Adam and gave her away to him in marriage. And Adam rejoiced. And he was amazed. You can almost feel the sense of wonderment in this uh, bit of poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right. Um, he had no lack of reason for rejoicing before his marriage, before he met his wife. He had no lack of reason to rejoice. Because the whole world was his and he was perfect and he was in relationship with God. Right. Um, but he rejoiced in finding his other, someone to love, someone to give himself to, because that's what he was made for. That's God's uh, intention in having made humanity, male and female, in his image. Humanity was intended for deep intimacy, special intimacy, um, in the relationship between the one and the other. It says, uh, I mean, that it doesn't get more intimate and special than the last verse <clears throat> of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, there's a sense in which the marriage union 
reflects God's image more clearly than any other institution as the union uh, between two persons in utter love, utter, utter self-giving, mutual delight, one in the other, and the other in the one. Uh, in the creation account, God gave the world to this married couple. It was their wedding gift, right? <clears throat> Marriage is one of the fundamental realities of the whole world. It's what creation leads up to. There's even a sense in which marriage is the point of the whole world as it reflects the kind of love that God has in himself, being a triune God. He has this kind of love, uh, and not only in himself, but as he moves out toward his creation, toward us in particular. The Bible describes the union that God has with his people, the perfect, blessed union that will be our eternal destiny as the union between a bridegroom and his bride. It's, it's that powerful. It's that intense. So love, love with the intensity and the totality of pure marital love is what we were made for. It's what we're redeemed for. It's what we're saved for. Right? Uh, because as we've talked about throughout the series, we've rejected the way of true love. And um, we've rejected the way of self-giving love for just self-love. Uh, the essence of our sin is that we cease to be one in relationship with the other especially God as the other. We've ceased to be one in relationship with the other, and we attempt to just be merely one. And that's kind of like a bizarro humanity. Right? It's fractured, and it's disintegrated humanity. It's humanity the way it should not be. It's, it's humanity the way it cannot be. Our biggest idol, uh, having been made for this kind of intimacy, made for this kind of love, our biggest idol around the whole world is an attempt to hold on to what we were made for, even in our rebellion. And so there are things like Tim Keller says in his book on marriage, apocalyptic romance, where you ascribe so much weight and glory and meaning and security to this, this romantic relationship that it becomes God. And you're looking for something that uh, only God can give you in this relationship with this man or this woman. Apocalyptic romance. Or, uh, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, just sexual addiction. Where you desperately need something. You need some fulfillment, and you're looking in totally the wrong place for it. But it's this, this false intimacy. It's a total distortion and destruction of the relationships that we were made for. It's our biggest idol as humans. <clears throat> and in order to rescue us from uh, this kind of stuff, this apocalyptic romance, I don't know if your wife has forced you to watch The Notebook, that kind of thing, or, um, or the sexual addiction or whatever it is, the, the self-love, the self-absorption, uh, in order to free us, in order to rescue us from the inescapable gravity of it, God sent his son into the world to love us, to give himself, to show us what love is and to love us, to make us his bride, to give, us, uh, to give himself up for us on the cross, to fill us with his spirit of love so that we would be free, to truly love again, to love the other, to love even as God loves. We can do that because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done for us. So the goal of our salvation is love. The goal of our salvation is love. It's the same kind of love 
that exists between a husband and a wife, yet on a divine scale, on an infinite scale, on an eternal scale between Christ and his church. Divine marriage is our eternal destiny, and that informs our earthly marriages. That shapes our earthly marriages as they're meant to be a reflection of our union with God in Christ. We read it in our New Testament reading uh, from Ephesians 5. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then a little further on, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's true because uh, when a man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to one wife, they become one flesh. They become one. Right? So if you love your wife, you love yourself. You're loving your wife as you love yourself, uh, which is what we're, we're all called to do, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But uh, particularly in this relationship between husband and wife, For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a section on husbands and wives. and This is all about Christ and the church. However, nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband in marriage. So the the relationship between husband and wife and the relationship between Christ and the church, they reflect each other. And and our relationships on earth in marriages should be shaped by the relationship that we find uh, between Christ and the church. We can have non-marital relationships that reflect God's image that's shared between us. We do that in the church. We, we have relationships with one another. It reflects God's image in us. But the marriage relationship is the ultimate earthly relationship of, of love between one and other because you become one. You become one with someone who is as different as he or she could be. And we need to learn better how to, to truly love that person. We need to appreciate how different that person really is. And we need to um, not just understand it or try to understand it, but to value it. Only God's Spirit can set us free to love a different person, even as we love and nourish and cherish ourselves, our own bodies. Only God's Spirit can do that. Otherwise, the instinctive selfish nature doesn't even permit us to consider the fact that the other is a legitimate person, is anything like me. Uh, This is probably especially true, sorry guys, of us insensitive uh, non-relational males. Um, I posted on uh, Facebook this week something that was going through my mind in preparation for this sermon, just a simple uh, quote, you are not the only way to be a person. Didn't make sense, right? You are not the only way to be a person. And that post got a bunch of likes. 13, okay, that's a bunch in my mind. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and one positive comment said, this should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> Every single one who liked or commented was a woman. It was a woman. 
young women, old women, white women, black women, married women, single women, Christian women, non-Christian women. The one response I got from a man was in a private message saying, sorry, I do not follow. Your quote does not make any sense to me. What are you trying to communicate? <laughs> um, men, you better be aware of the fact that you are not the only way to be a person. That women, especially your wives, uh, they're different from you. They're actually persons every bit as much as you are. Right? And if you're married, uh, I'd go so far as to say our text says, you are not a real man unless you are laying down your life for your wife, as Christ did for the church in loving her and giving himself for her. You're not fulfilling your maleness if you're in a marriage and you're not doing that for your wife. You're not a real man unless you're celebrating and cherishing your union together in a way that exalts her. Right? You can't just presume, think somewhere in the back of your mind, feel, or act as if she is your servant. You cannot think that. Even though that's natural. And it's natural for all of us to think, of course, these people around me are here to serve me. The love of Christ compels us to be the servant, to give ourselves in love to the other. And married women, you're to give yourselves fully and only in love and respect and honor to your husbands. Sometimes they don't deserve it, maybe most of the time, <laughs> I don't know, um, even as the church gives herself to Christ, who does deserve it. You're not less than your husband. You're also not more than he is. Um, he may not often act like it. Sorry, I just keep throwing myself and all these guys under the bus. But he's an adult. He's a human person, just like you. Uh, we're all called to esteem others more highly than ourselves in love. We're all called to that. And that is the special role to which a wife is called in her marriage. We're called to hold tension in our marriages between oneness and otherness. Between one and many. Even as uh, we reflect on God, he is ultimately both one and many. He's one and three. <clears throat> so we're to emphasize both our unity with our spouses, that we are one flesh, and emphasizes the differences between us. Right? Um, because if you only emphasize unity, it'll become distorted, and what you'll get uh, will be sameness and uniformity, which is not true. Right? You'll have over-familiarity, which breeds disinterest and boredom in your relationship, if you just emphasize the, the unity, emphasize the oneness of the marriage. If you only emphasize differences, you'll end up with distance and fights and drifting, and soon you won't be celebrating the differences, you'll be lamenting the differences. Um, but if you hold the two together, and if you embrace the differences between the sexes in your marriage and celebrate the incredible union that you share, that two have become one flesh 
Then you have love. Then you have real love. And when by God's grace we actually start to do this, to love the other person in our marriage the way that we're meant to love, all of our relationships benefit. All of them do. Uh, Tim Keller says, it's a great book on marriage that uh, I think a lot of you have gone through, um, that when, when a, a marriage is healthy, the people find strength to live healthy uh, in all of their relationships, right? Um, but when marriage is falling apart, you're pretty much guaranteed to be a wreck in all of your relationships. Um, maybe it's ultimately a mystery why this is true, but it's at least partially due to the fact that marital love, when it reflects the image of God, when it reflects divine love, it's central to our intended nature as humans and to our eternal, eternal destiny as those who are united to Christ in the church. It is central to who we are and what our hope is. And again, this is not to say that unmarried folks are um, second-class citizens or incapable of truly relating to uh, one to the other in their non-marital relationships. Um, but even the scripture makes a point that it's a special gifting of God that enables a person to live life as a single person without overwhelming bitterness, uh, without frustration. Uh, true love um, true love is the giving of yourself to someone who is other, someone who is different. And our best, most consistent, all-pervasive opportunity to do that on earth in a way that affects all of our relationships is in our marriages. Um, I'll close with a quote that's in the beginning of the bulletin from Mike Mason. It's another good book on marriage. To be married is to have found in a total stranger a near and long-lost relative, a true blood relative even closer to us than father or mother. In marriage, a man is given the opportunity of seeing one woman, one person, as he has never seen any woman or person before. Marriage not only affords as deep a glimpse into the heart and soul of another being as we shall ever have, but it cannot survive without deliberately striving to preserve the spontaneity and freshness of this insight. Marriage seems to specialize at times in radically de-emphasizing the similarities between the partners and wildly exaggerating the points of difference. But this is so that a couple may come to know one another at the deepest level, at the only level that really matters, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Marriage, as simply as it can be defined, is the contemplation of the love of God in and through the form of another human being. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, most of us here um, who are adults are married, and we give you thanks, and we confess our sins uh, to you and to our spouses that, um, that we are self-centered, that we do not love as we should love, and we thank you that you have loved us in a way that is just unfathomable to us, and that your love changes us and makes us more like you to be able to love truly our spouses the way that we were meant to, and so truly to reflect your image in us. We pray that you would continue to do your good work in our hearts by your Spirit, the Holy Spirit of love. And for those of us who are not married, um, we pray your peace and your love 
would so overwhelm our hearts that uh, we would truly be able to love others, even though not in that uh, one marriage union, that one type of relationship, uh, that, that you would enable us still and, um, and at a broad level to, to love others as you have loved us, to lay down our lives for others as you have laid, laid down your life for us, O Christ, to truly give ourselves, to truly esteem others as better than ourselves in love. Um, because we were not made only to receive love, we were made to give love, and all of us can do that as you change our hearts, as you dwell in us by faith. And so we pray that you would grant us faith and grant us your spirit who does that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.